2 Thessalonians chapter 2, Sin and Judgment. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. And for this reason God will send upon them a deluding influence, so that they might believe what is false, in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. But... We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. And it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Amen. The letter to the Thessalonians in this second letter is a continuation of 1 Thessalonians and the concerns of the return of Christ and how to live and what we should do meantime between the first coming and the second coming. It tells us what to anticipate in the second coming of Christ. Chapter 1 of this book, 2 Thessalonians, taught that the Lord will come to give relief to us who are afflicted and then afflict our afflictors, to afflict our persecutors with eternal destruction. Relief to us, joy to us, but then judgment and justice for the reprobate who persecute us. Chapter 2 continues to say more about the return of Christ. And it's necessary because of what's going on in verse 2. Verse 2 says that there are false teachers who are shaking these disciples shaking them up from their composure because they are saying things that are false in relation to the return of Christ. The return of Christ is a central doctrine that has been believed from the time of the apostles in terms of the post-apostolic church. It's not a new doctrine that the apostles taught it. It's even taught in the Old Testament. Many references to the return of Christ in the Old Testament. Well, what is the proper perspective with it? It's not a doctrine that can be a take-it-or-leave-it doctrine. The circumstances surrounding his return, what we ought to believe about his return, what will happen when he does return and after he returns, these are doctrines that are explained in the Bible. So that we cannot say, well, Christians have different opinions 
you like it one way, I like it another way, we cannot take that approach. We have to understand what the scripture says because there are many serious, grave, important implications. As the Apostle Paul is telling the Thessalonians right here. And they are so important that those who are following the man of lawlessness, son of destruction, they belong to Satan, he says in verse 9. They don't love the truth so as to be saved, verse 10. And then God punishes them by sending a deluding influence on them in order that they might believe what is false. In order that they might believe what's false. So this is serious. It's serious and we should understand what the scripture says. Otherwise we'll be judged. If we don't understand the difference between truth and falsehood, sin and righteousness, we will be judged accordingly. Verse 1. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. The subject matter is stated in verse 1. The subject matter is not the rapture of the church. The subject matter is the return of our Lord, which accompanies our gathering together to him. The rapture of the church is not a separate event when we are gathered together to him, but our gathering together to Christ happens when he returns, as it says in chapter 2, verse 1. The coming and the gathering are one event, two aspects of the same event. So verse 1, just like other verses in First and Second Thessalonians and elsewhere in Scripture, they undermine the doctrine of the rapture as a separate event from the return or the second coming of Christ. Those who misunderstand this distinction or the unity of this doctrine in terms of the coming and the gathering, they say things that disturb people and bother people. They teach things that quickly shake people from their faith and composure. Verse 2, he wants us to have certainty and clarity on the doctrine, verse 2, that you may not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed. The purpose of the scripture is not to have a shaky faith, but have a stable faith. The purpose of the scripture is to maintain composure, stability, strength in the faith, what we ought to believe. The purpose of the scripture is not to disturb us in faith, but to confirm us in faith. Not to disturb us, but to give us comfort, as he says in 2.16 and 17, eternal comfort, good hope, comfort, and strength. That's what the, the true faith will produce in us as we think about the return of Christ and the life to come. We should have assurance of faith, not doubts, not uncertainties. We shouldn't be shaken. But the false teachers, the heretics, they are the ones who cause people to be quickly shaken. They are the ones who disturb the faith. They are the ones who upset the composure of the true faith in Christians. How do they do it? They do it by a spirit, verse 2, a spirit. That is, they claim that a spirit spoke to them or a spirit is speaking. They claim that they have the spirit of prophecy who is speaking to them so that they have a channel, an avenue, a secret back alley to God. And you have to consult them to know. The scripture is unclear, they say. The scripture will not tell you and guide you in the right way. You need a spirit from them, supposedly the Holy Spirit, but we know from verse 9, it's not the Holy Spirit, it's a satanic spirit. Verses 9 and 11, a satanic spirit, not the Holy Spirit. 
Also, they preach messages. And most likely when he says message, he means a verbal message because he says letter in the next phrase. A verbal message in verse 2. He said message, for example, in chapter, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, 2, 13. And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you receive from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. When they were receiving it, the, the message of God, it was spoken to them, it was preached to them, and also shown to them in the written word. And then we also find in 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians 5, 3. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child and they shall not escape. So, the verbal message, they are preaching peace and safety. Everything is fine. Listen to us. We'll tell you the right way. Not true. But also, the written message, chapter 2, verse 2 says, or a letter as if from us. There were counterfeit letters, fraudulent letters, fake letters sent, written by heretics, false teachers, sending them to the churches for them to read. And they were imposters or counterfeits because it says a letter as if from us. They were coming from the false teachers, but they said, this is written by Paul. They were coming from the false teachers, but they were saying, no, this is a letter of Peter. This is the letter of John. These are apostolic letters, but they're not really. This is the reason in 317, 2 Thessalonians 317, he says this, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark in every letter. This is the way I write. He's telling them that so that they know this is a genuine letter. Whatever letters you Thessalonians have received have, and that contradict what I've already said are not from me. This letter of 2 Thessalonians is from me. Another is Galatians 6. Galatians 6, 11. Galatians 6, 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Large letters with his own hand. Probably the Apostle Paul had problems with his eyesight, losing his ability to see. So he has to write with large letters so he knows and he can see what his own hand is writing. And the people know that because they've already met him and he's explained his problems with eyesight. So he says, I'm writing with my own hand. Another one is 1 Corinthians 16, 21. 1 Corinthians 16, 21. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. We have to know whether written or verbal or even a spirit or a claim to have a word from God by a spirit or by the Holy Spirit in somebody, whether it's actually from God or not. We have to test the spirits to see whether they are from God 
For many false prophets have gone out into the world. 1 John 4, verse 1. We should not believe every spirit. We should not believe every spoken word. And we should not believe every written word. We have to know whether it's from God. If we believe them, then we are believing lies. Believing lies is not righteousness, it's sin. And we'll be judged for believing lies. The naive believes everything, but the prudent man considers his steps. Proverbs 14, 15. Well, what was it that they taught? They said, the day of the Lord has come. To the effect that the day of the Lord has come. They were saying, he's already come. The return has already happened. It already the resurrection has already taken place. Second Timothy two, fourteen to eighteen. They were teaching that the resurrection already took place, and you're not a part of the resurrection. The return of Christ has already taken place, and you're not a part of it. Or it has already taken place, and what Paul said, or what another apostle said about it is not right, we are right. And that therefore they disturb the faith of some by that. But the day of the Lord, the return of Christ, is not going to be done secretly. It's not going to be done invisibly. It's going to be done visibly and in the open. It will be obvious to everyone that the Lord Jesus is returning. Matthew 24, Matthew 24, 23, Matthew 24, 23. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and will show great signs and wonders so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance. They will say, oh, he's over there or he's over here. He's in the wilderness. No, don't believe them because it's going to be obvious. No one will have to tell you. Because it's going to happen suddenly, it's going to happen visibly, physically, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Revelation 1, 7. Zechariah 12, 10. It's going to be obvious and evident to everybody that that is the case. So don't be alarmed and don't be surprised. Jesus also said in Acts chapter 1, this very thing. Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11. Acts 1, 9. And after he had said these things, he was lifted up while they were looking on, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And as they were gazing intently into the sky, while he was departing, behold, two men in white clothing stood beside them. And they also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus, who has been taken up from you into heaven, will come in just the same way as you have watched him go into heaven. These two angels, who are in the appearance of men, are godly, heavenly angels. And they are saying that as you saw Jesus lifted up, he's going to come down the same way you saw him lifted up. So, no surprises in terms of secrecy. It will be open, obvious, and visible to all. So the day of the Lord hasn't come. We know also throughout history, many have said Jesus will return on a certain date. And they've been wrong. All of them have been wrong because we're still here. And therefore, do not listen to them.
They are false teachers. Well, the apostle, as Christ does in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21, the apostle Paul right here also tells us that there are certain signs, there are certain events that must first take place before he returns. And we should anticipate them. We should expect them. We should look for them. What are they? Verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. No one should in any way deceive us. It should be that clear, that obvious. So if anyone says something contrary... It's deception. Don't let it happen. Nobody should deceive us. We should be thinking with godly judgment, godly discernment, and unpersuaded by the onslaught of deception. Why so? The apostasy has to happen first. Apostasy. To apostatize means to fall away. That is, to claim the faith, but really deny the faith, and even to walk away from the faith. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. 1 Timothy 4, 1 to 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith. There, fall away and to apostatize or apostasy, same thing. From the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. There must be the apostasy first. But also, there also uh, must be the revelation of, the manifestation of, the display of, the man of lawlessness, son of destruction. He wants nothing to do with the law of God. He is the ultimate antinomian. He's the ultimate libertarian. He's the ultimate libertine. He wants nothing to do with the commandments of God, the Ten Commandments. He wants nothing to do with them. He's lawless. He also is called son of destruction. He destroys He doesn't edify, he destroys. He doesn't build up, he demolishes. So don't listen to him. He is a son of destruction, similar to 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that says, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He is the leader of the pack. Notice here, apostasy and man of lawlessness, son of destruction, also must come. So what's coming? The return of Christ is coming, but apostasy is coming, and this man of lawlessness is coming. We have to be alert, understand the difference between the two. The, the Christ himself and the Antichrist. What's the difference? We have to discern This one, what does he do? He opposes, verse 4, he opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes a seat in the temple of God displaying himself as being God. He believes he is the supreme God and therefore he wants all to worship him as the supreme God. He will have to be superior or claim to be superior to all the idols of the world. All the gods that the peoples of the world worship, 
but also even the true God. He will have to supplant by his preaching and by his deeds, he has to supplant and overturn, contradict the doctrine of the true God, the true and living God whom we worship through Christ. He will be a substitute, an antichrist. And in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Everyone should worship him instead of our God. This should not be new. It should not be something perplexing to the Thessalonians and not even to us. He says, do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? When he was with them, he was openly telling them. Now he's reminding them because they needed the reminder since they were disturbed in faith. 1 Thessalonians 3, 4. 1 Thessalonians 3, 4. Let's read from verse 1. Therefore, when we could endure it no longer, we thought it best to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that no man may be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. For indeed, when we were with you, we kept telling you in advance that we were going to suffer affliction. And so it came to pass, as you know. They were preaching affliction to the believers. They were teaching them in advance that this would happen. As he's teaching in chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians, he was telling them in advance that the great afflictor, the great persecutor, will be this man of lawlessness, son of destruction. He's going to come and he's going to bombard the church with all of his persecutions. Be ready for it. Verse 6, 2 Thessalonians 2, 6. And you know what restrains him now, so that in his time he may be revealed. He is being restrained now, but eventually he will be revealed. It's likely that it is God, through the Holy Spirit, who is restraining him because when God sends his spirit in the world, he restrains evil. But when he withdraws his spirit, he lets the evildoers whatever, uh, do whatever they want. This is like in the, in the book of Ezekiel 10 and 11, the Holy Spirit dwelt in the temple of God. Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11. But when God was ready to destroy his own temple and let the wicked Babylonians do it, he withdrew his Holy Spirit from the temple of God so that the wicked world, Babylonians, could destroy the temple and do whatever they want. This is similar here, that God is restraining the devil. Remember, the devil is not in control of the world in the ultimate sense. God is, and he delegates and relegates authority to the devil to do what he wants. But God is in control of the devil. Job chapters 1 and 2. Remember, the devil, Satan, approaches God, and God lets him do or assigns him to do certain things, but with restrictions, with restraint. We'll speak about this some more in verses 11 and 12. And that's what's happening here as well. So then, verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. If in fact this is a reference to the Holy Spirit, he will be taken out of the way so that the man of lawlessness can uh, perpetuate more lawlessness. 
He says in 7 that lawlessness is already at work. Lawlessness is already at work. How so? 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, 18. Children, it is the last hour. And just as you heard that Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have arisen. From this, we know that it is the last hour. The one Antichrist, the worst of them all, is coming. But meantime, many Antichrists have arisen. Many. The book of Second John. The book of Second John. Second John and beginning at verse seven. Second John seven. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Meantime, there are many deceivers. Not a few, many. Back to Second Thessalonians. He says in verse 8, how this Antichrist the last and final, the greatest of the Antichrists, how he will be treated by the Lord. Verse 8. And then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. The lawless one will be destroyed by the Lord Jesus himself. The Lord Jesus will punish and destroy forever the Antichrist when he returns. Why does he deserve to be destroyed? Verse 9 says, That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. He deserves to be destroyed because he's coming in the power of Satan. Remember, in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapters 5 to 15 describe the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. And in chapter, chapters 5 to 15, we have a section there when the magicians of Egypt performed miracles. They performed miracles and false signs by the power of Satan. And so with this Antichrist, he will have all power, signs, and false wonders to display by the power of Satan. For what purpose and why also should he be destroyed? Verse 10, with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. He's performing the false wonders by Satan's power to continue to deceive those people who are destined to perish. For those who perish, they are deceived by the Antichrist because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. If they're not going to perish and be saved, what do they need to do? Love the truth. This is the characteristic of a believer. They love the truth. They don't love deception. They don't love lies. They don't love falsehoods. They love the truth so as to be saved. They are seekers of truth so as to be saved. On the contrary, the unbelievers, because they do not receive the love of the truth to be saved, they are already in a state of perishing, already in a state of believing 
the lies of Satan through the Antichrist, and even in our day through many Antichrists, they believe that. So what does God do to them? Does he spare them? No. He further judges them. Verse 11. And for this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they might believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Whatever they love to do, God sends them a deluding influence to do more of it and then be judged for doing more of it. It goes from bad to worse for them. Romans 1, 24. After describing some sins, he says, Romans 1, 24. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity that their bodies might be dishonored among them. They commit sins and God gives them over to commit more sins. He sends a deluding influence that they, so that they continue to do that. 126. For this re- reason, God gave them over to degrading passions for their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Verse 28. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. He makes it worse for them. They go from bad to worse. 2 Corinthians 2, 2 Corinthians 2, 14 to 17. They go from death to death. Bad to worse, but from death to death. 2 Corinthians 2.14 But thanks be to God who always leads us in His triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ the God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one an aroma from death to death, to the other an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. He says in verse 16, the ones who are unbelievers, reprobate, wicked, to be destroyed, they are in death and they will continue in death. They go from death to death from bad to worse. The deluding influence. What is the deluding influence that God sends? It says God will send, right? God will send upon them a deluding influence. Judges chapter 9. Judges chapter 9. 9, 22 to 23. The deluding influence is an evil spirit. It may be one demon. It it may be a number of demons. It may be Satan himself. That is the deluding influence. Judges 9, 22 to 25. 9, 22. This man, Abimelech, was an evil man. He massacred, assassinated his siblings and became king temporarily, became king for three years. 9.22. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years. Then God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the men of Shechem, and the men of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, in order that the violence done to the 70 sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood might be laid upon Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. And the men of Shechem sent, set men in ambush against him on the tops of the mountains, and they robbed all who might pass by them along the road, and it was told to Abimelech. Then, as we continue to read, Abimelech is finally killed prematurely by a woman by the end of this chapter. But what had to happen? What was happening? First, Abimelech, an evil man, commits evil, as it says in verse 24. He murdered 70 sons of his father. He murdered them. Then 
God gave the, him control or kingship for three years in Israel. But after three years, the men who had helped him, the Shechemites who helped him and were allies with him, God sent an evil spirit. Verse 23, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the Shechemites so that though they were friends and allies, they became enemies suddenly. And when they became enemies, turmoil, chaos ensued, and eventually Abimelech was killed in this chaos and conflict between them. We may also see this in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 14. 16, 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And the men around Saul knew it. Look at verse 15. Saul's servants then said to him, Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. First, in verse 14, the prophet of God who wrote the book of 1 Samuel says, The spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. And then the officials or servants of Saul say the same thing. Behold, now an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. This is the deluding influence that God will send upon all these people who refuse the love of the truth so as to be saved. He's going to make it go from bad to worse to them. Because they did not believe the truth, they took pleasure in wickedness. Now, verses 13 to 15. After expressing the truth about the return and the Antichrist, he says in 13 to 15, what he's explaining to the Thessalonians what confidence he has in them because he has seen fruit. That means that the Thessalonians were fruitful, but also... At this moment, they were shaken up. So true believers who were disturbed and shaken up in faith, he returns to discussing their faith. Verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. They have been living godly Lives, but now he reminds them of the source and the relationship they have to God. The source of everything they have is God, and their relationship is with God. How and why? Because they are beloved by the Lord, by the Lord Jesus. God has chosen them from the beginning. That's predestination, not free will but predestination from the beginning, meaning before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3 to 14, before the foundation of the world, chosen. But the salvation, chosen for salvation, that ultimate final salvation has yet not yet arrived. We experience it now by justification and sanctification, but the glorification part has not arrived. But that salvation will take place through sanctification. We have to be sanctified. It's not enough to finally be saved. Meantime, between the first and second comings of Christ, between our faith in Christ and anticipation of His return, we are being sanctified. We are being made holy. We're not living a careless and casual Christian life. First Thessalonians four seven. First Thessalonians four seven says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. God has called us 
for sal um, salvation through sanctification. Yet the sanctification is not the will of man working independently or devoid of the Spirit of God. It says, by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. This is also 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 8. 4, 8. Consequently, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit at work in us is the reason why sanctification is possible. It's also possible because of faith in the truth. It's the Spirit of God and the truth of God found in the Word of God. The Spirit of God and the Word of God. They work together, so we must have faith in this truth, the Word of truth, the Gospel. Colossians 1.5 The faith is in the truth. Not in falsehood. We are not saved by believing lies. We are saved by faith in the truth. The word of truth. Verse 14. For it was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is effectual. This call is the effectual call, not the general call. The effectual call of the Holy Spirit, not the general call of the preacher. The preacher's general call is necessary, but that general call is successful by the preacher only if the effective call, internal call of the Holy Spirit is at work in the hearer. That's what he's describing. Through our gospel. He called you through our gospel. Here again, the Spirit of God and the Word of God at work. Verses 13 and 14. And what is the goal? What will be the outcome of the work of the Spirit and the work of the Word in us? The glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we will gain. Eternal glory. That's the glorification. Justification, sanctification, glorification. If this is what is in store for us, if this is what awaits us, 15 says, so then... So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Whether we came to you in person or we are writing letters to you, stand firm. Don't be shaken. Don't be disturbed. Don't be upset by what you hear. Cling on to the truth. Hold fast the confession of hope firm until the end. Hold on to it. Stand firm. Like he says, stand firm in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Ephesians 6, 10 to 20, and put on the full armor of God. Verse 15 should not be misunderstood when he says traditions. The traditions which you were taught. The traditions here does not mean the Matthew 15 and Mark 7 traditions of men. He's not talking about the traditions they were taught by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. That is not what he means. He means the traditions of God by the apostles of God. The traditions of God by the apostles of God. That's what he means by traditions. 1 Corinthians 11 1 Corinthians 11, verse 2, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I deliver them to you. Just as they were taught, Second, uh, Second Thessalonians 2.15, here he says, just as I delivered them to you, he commends them for remembering him in everything and holding firmly to the traditions that he delivered to them. These are apostolic traditions. 
Also, 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you receive from us. The tradition you receive from us, obey them, follow them, because they are in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are from Christ. Anyone who deviates from them, we should keep aloof from them. Whoever does not keep to the traditions of the apostles, which are the traditions of Christ, they ought to be avoided. Instead, cling on to the traditions of the apostles, which are the traditions of Christ. Christ is the true teacher, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the Zealots. They are all false teachers. Now, the final verses in the chapters, chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. God the Father and his Son, they send the Holy Spirit, chapter 2, verse 13. They send the Holy Spirit to us, to assure us, confirm to us the love of God, the eternal comfort of God, the good hope of God, the grace of God, the comfort of God in our hearts. This is how it works. This is why we believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The three of them work in harmony to grant us this love, comfort, hope, and strength in our hearts. When the heart is depressed, when the heart is distracted, then everything else flows from that. But how can the heart receive what it needs for every good work and word? By God. His, by God himself and his son, Jesus Christ, through his word and through his spirit. That's how we are equipped for every good work and word. Not by the wisdom of men, not by the books of men, but from God himself. If we have God himself, we don't need the traditions of churches and denominations. We don't need the traditions of men. We need God, God himself. We have access to him right here in the Bible. The word of God in the Bible and the spirit of God in our hearts. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.